This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Paid non-attorney spokesperson Adam Pulaski of the Pulaski Law Firm with principal office in Houston, Texas, is the attorney responsible for the content of this ad. This ad is not legal advice, and the choice of a lawyer should not be based solely upon advertisement. Services may not be available in all states. Attention Zarelto users. If you or a loved one took Zarelto and suffered a serious bleeding event, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Zarelto is a popular prescription blood thinner used to prevent blood clots and protect patients from strokes. These serious bleeding events have led to numerous cases of hospitalization and even death. Phone lines are open 24-7. Call 800-630-6720. That's 800-630-6720. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, this would be episode number 32, the 32nd show that we have done. And uh, you are the motivation. You are the stimulus. You are the people who make it all possible. So thank you. And I I always start off with a a word of appreciation because without you, there wouldn't be a show. And uh, today we're going to talk about, uh, well, yes, Valentine's Day. Bah, humbug. (laughs) Let's get rid of Valentine's Day. Come on, if, if, you, if you still observe this, if you in any way still celebrate it, why don't you make it the last year you're going to do it and then move on to a far healthier plateau of emotional connection than is stimulated by Valentine's Day. What do I mean? Well, look, let me just stress at the very outset I am in favor of love. I am in favor of romantic love. I am in favor of deeply connected, erotic love between husband and wife. Yes, I am. Let that all be clearly understood. But I am still negative towards Valentine's Day, completely and entirely. Well, why would that be? Um, look, there, there are several reasons to denounce Valentine's Day. But I think that one of the, the most uh, urgent and important reasons to denounce Valentine's Day is that uh, by designating one day a year to express your profoundest feelings towards perhaps the most important person in your life is um, likely to suggest that the other 364 days a year, well, not that important. And so, really, the, the way to approach Valentine's Day is to say, in my marriage, Every day is Valentine's Day. That's right. February the 14th is no more significant a day on which to express your deepest feelings of appreciation and admiration and love for your spouse than any other day. Ah, I hear you say, This is all very well. Maybe you're just talking about marital love. But what about all those people who are not yet married? They want to be. 
but isn't it a good thing that they have a day on which to celebrate love? Well, there again, we have to talk a little bit about uh, what love is and how it applies in a way that um, I'm afraid does not allow me to validate Valentine's Day even in that particular area. But first of all, let's also take a look at the way that Valentine's Day infantilizes something that shouldn't be at that level. It's laughable, it's ridiculous, but uh, in countless gigs around the country, and for those of you for whom this might be your very first Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, oh dear, I suppose I have to go and explain the nomenclature. One of the terrific things about having a regular show and uh, regular listeners is that the the technology becomes understood. The nomenclature becomes well-known. But, okay, fine. For those of you just joining, welcome. And when I use the word a gick, a gick is a government indoctrination camp, otherwise known as, well, you know what it is, right? It's a public school. Uh, it's a government indoctrination camp. It's where you send off your children every morning and the camp bus picks them up, and then the camp bus will drop them off home late in the day. But in between, you've given over the best hours of the child's day for government indoctrination. And that's why you will find that uh, geography, where children actually learn the location of countries around the world and the cities in those countries, let alone the states and their capitals, well, no, that's been replaced by social studies. And you know what I feel about any academic discipline that requires the word studies as a suffix, right? They don't do arithmetic studies. They don't do reading studies. They don't do writing studies. Arithmetic, reading, and writing, we know what they are. They don't need any word after that. Social studies, yeah, that's right. And uh, so your children can use the time that previously was given over to geography, for instance, uh, now given over to climate change, environmentalism. And your children can be trained in, uh, in excellent Stalinist terms to be little spies around your house to see how low or high your carbon footprint is. Do you know what's really outrageous? Uh, my power company, the company that supplies my home with uh, electricity and with gas, do you know that they waste money every month sending out little notifications telling you how well you are doing in saving energy compared to your neighbors? Is this not Stalinist? <laughs> do you get this as well where you live? Um, I've, I've seen this in, in two homes already. Uh, where we received that. And uh, and needless to say, by the way, I always lag behind my neighbors. Now, I don't know if this is because uh, I like to be warm in the winter and I like to be cool in the summer. I don't know if it's because uh, I legitimately do use heating and air conditioning. Yes, I do! Um, or is this even more Stalinist than I suspect? And
and uh, what they really do is automatically send out the same thing to everybody. You are less energy efficient than your neighbors. Your neighbors, we've checked into them, and they are much more carbon sensitive than you are. And, uh, and so <laughs> this, is all, this is all part of, and, and your children are being taught the same thing at whatever gig they attend unless they're lucky enough to be homeschooled or at a private school or at a parochial school, that would be different. But um, in, uh, in uh, gigs, even at first grade level around the country, the, the teachers do Valentine's Day. Now this is before, I mean, this, we're talking about well before the children have, have reached puberty, before they even know what it is, before at a time when they still find the other gender icky, and now we've got to indoctrinate them into Valentine's Day. And sure enough, I mean, your first grader, your second grader are being given Valentine's Day exercises. Yes, they're making little hearts, and some, in some places it's nice, they do it for their mummies, uh, but in others they actually match them up with the little girl across the classroom. And the little boy has to do a little Valentine's This is going on all over the place. And so they are being conditioned to become sexualized even earlier than was the case before. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, who says this has got anything to do with sex? Can't there be love without sex? Can't you just have a little boy and a little girl harmlessly expressing love for one another. Wouldn't it be nice to live in a world of love instead of the harsh, cruel, Old Testament world that you rabbis like to encourage? And um, look, as much as, as much as I would like to massage you with warm butter, as much as I would like to reassure you, yes, don't worry, everything is fine, everything is cool, and uh, it's, yes, love is perfect, and if people are encouraged, little kids are encouraged to express love to little girls, fine, no problem. Um, uh, unfortunately, I cannot in all candor say that. Uh, honestly, in, in terms of my mission, which is to, to tell you the truth, I don't think I can really say that, and I, I have to uh, be truthful and tell you that it is plainly unhealthy. It's a really bad idea for society, let alone for every little boy and girl, for them to be uh, sexualized so early. And yes, uh, romantic love, uh, as is expressed with hearts and pink colors on, on Valentine's Day, you know, for a, uh, a six or seven-year-old little girl or a six or seven-year-old little boy, uh, is prematurely exposing them to this idea that... Uh, Connecting with the other gender is, is, is something that is part of what you should be thinking of and part of what you should be doing. Maybe, maybe what I ought to do is, uh, first of all, give you the a better alternative. Maybe the better ways for me to describe how it ought to work. And look, I'm not naive. I'm, I'm not out of touch with reality. And uh, I know that the, the, the train has left the station on, on many of these topics. However, it doesn't hurt to still remember what things were meant to be like. And so, for instance, in the area of dating, 
Let me tell you that that's a, a modern word. The correct word was courting. What is the difference between dating and courting? Well, you could ask my daughters. They'll tell you. Or you could ask my son. Right? He'll tell you. Courting is purposeful. Courting is driven by a goal. Courting is what you do when you are looking for a life partner. What is dating? Dating is open-ended. Dating is a lifestyle. Dating is recreational. Excepting, my friends, that uh, dating is a lot more fun for boys than it is for girls. And even intuitively, without delving into the, the spiritual depths of all this, most fathers are intuitively and instinctively far more protective about their daughters than about their sons. Uh, you'll remember the, the country music song about the father cleaning his revolver in the living room well, when somebody comes to pick up his daughter for a date. Uh, well, that song was about somebody coming to date his daughter, not his son. And I think everybody relates to that. Everybody understands that because dating provides far more peril and pain to girls than it does to boys. As a matter of fact, boys are the ones inflicting that pain. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the trouble is that girls are much more likely to become emotionally involved. And it is impossible for a girl who goes out, even, even if she's 14 years old, maybe I should say especially if she's 14 years old, but she starts thinking, in t look, do I have to spell this out for you? Come on, really. Do I have to tell you what is in the mind of a 16-year-old boy who goes out on a date with a girl whom he thinks is hot? Do you think he's thinking, well, <laughs> come on, <laughs> let's go the other way. What is the, the, the girl thinking? She's going on a date with this guy, and he's a popular guy in the school, and she's 15, all of 15 years old or 14 years old these days. And, uh, and what is she thinking? You know that she is thinking about him being the father of her children, and she's thinking of white picket fence, and she's thinking of marriage. And particularly, I say, at the age of 14 or 15 or 16, because she may not yet. Uh, have become conditioned to think in feminist terms. And so she's thinking in natural terms, the way her hormones are helping her think, the way her biology is helping her think. She is thinking in terms of nest building, and this is the guy. And she has no idea that to him, she is nothing but an opportunity for sexual adventure. And so what happens is that um, she is subjected to a roller coaster of emotional highs and lows. Not so for the young boy. He just sees himself on a quest for the Holy Grail. He's just trying to strike it lucky. And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't, which just makes him all the more ardent for the next time. But that's what that's what dating is today in American uh, geek-educated young people. That's, that's what it's like. 
And it all starts off with Valentine's Day in the first grade. Now, uh, the, um, the website I ask you to visit, of course, is uh, youneedarabbi.com. And over in the store, you'll see a product called, it's, a, it's an audio CD program and a 16-page study guide, uh, called Madam, I'm Adam. Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Uh, what I'm going to be telling you about in, in this show is um, uh, different from what is there. Uh, it is, that is solid, hardcore data. And it's the sort of thing that uh, your teenage son or daughter should listen to. It's the sort of thing that anybody engaged to be married should listen to with uh, the affianced. And uh, it's, it's what husbands and wives should listen to together. Uh, you need a rabbi.com. And uh, go ahead and seek out the, uh, the audio program called Madam, I'm Adam. Quick break, and uh, we'll delve more deeply in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Jimmy Carter endures Donald Trump. Here's his rationale. Trump has proven already that he is completely malleable. I don't think he has any fixed opinion that he would fight for. If you're Ted Cruz, this is gold. If I'm Ted Cruz, I would shout this from the rooftop. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being part of it. And uh, look, any orthopedic surgeon will tell you that uh, if you repeatedly break a bone in the same place, it becomes increasingly more difficult to set and to repair. And so, you know, if somebody has an accident and, and they, they break a bone, Today's surgeons are so skilled and the medicine is so advanced that uh, it's almost a minor event. It gets, it gets reset. It gets, uh, you, you immobilize it with a plaster for a while, and, uh, and then it's you know, good to go. And if you break that same leg somewhere else, they do the same thing. But if you break it in exactly the same place and you do that a couple of times, you get to a point where it's going to become very difficult, if not impossible, um, to repair. We don't do well with repeated injuries. Um, let me give you a, that's a physical example. Uh, allow me please to present you with a spiritual example. Um, somebody, uh, classic, right? Somebody gets thrown by a horse. Uh, you're introducing a person to the delights of horse riding and uh, the horse rears up in, in fear at, at some uh, something and uh, the, the rider gets thrown, no, no injuries physically, lands on soft grass, but is terrified. Now, everybody knows what's the wise thing you do. You, uh, you have to somehow persuade or cajole or beg or plead uh, for that person to get right back on the horse because, as everybody knows, if they don't do that, they remain forever fearful of horses and horse riding. And so, little by little, you, you, you get them back on the horse, and, and they go riding at a, at a, at a gentle uh, clip, 
and and little by little they start realizing that you know there was an exceptional event uh, most people ride horses all their lives and and never get thrown it you know it happens but not often so go ahead and enjoy your horse riding but what happens if uh, two days later the person gets thrown again and again with much difficulty you get them back on a horse and the horse throws them again I think you'll agree that after the third time, the, the damage is probably pretty permanent. Um, you know, a person will be fine. They'll uh, live normal, full lives, right? Millions of people don't go horse riding, so no problem there. However, regarding the relationship with a horse, that's over. That's finished. It was just one too many being thrown. All right. So, in other words, the, the repeated impact of trauma uh, whether spiritual or uh, or physical, is severe. And I tell you all of that um, so as to be able to adequately explain why it is that uh, when this 14 or 15-year-old girl dating popular guy in the high school, she's, she's busy imagining permanence and connection. He is busy imagining having her to himself with her parents out of the way and uh, being able to have his way with her, to put it... <laughs> To put it bluntly, right? I mean, uh, I think everybody, each one of you listening now, um, has um, has clear understanding of what I'm talking about. Uh, but sooner or later, he dumps her, right? And she's devastated. She's a little girl who thought she was a big girl, and uh, she she thought she was moving to. I mean, you know, she she realized she's only fourteen or fifteen, but somewhere in her mind. She was becoming adult-like. She was beginning to plan her life. And don't forget that uh, for, uh, for, 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 for sensible people of, uh, of that age, there is already an understanding that your life begins when you find your life partner. And the popular culture does everything possible to try and uh, describe precisely the opposite, that somehow or another... Uh, life is wonderful until you finally shackle your destiny to a ball and chain, and and that is your your future spouse, and uh, and in fact all of all of television programming uh, is designed to glamorize the single lifestyle. Uh, I don't have to, I don't have to tell you about one of the most successful of all television. Uh, primetime series was Friends. And, you know, and you, like me, may well have laughed at some of the brilliant uh, writing and some of the superb acting that did go on in that series. Uh, but stop to think about it. Think back and think about what the real messages are that were being beamed into the culture. And again, knowing uh, how much money is spent on advertising, you can realize that uh, hard-headed corporations spending that sort of money on advertising only do it because they know how persuasive advertising is. And so we just have to think of a show like Friends as advertising, not for a product, but for a lifestyle. Advertising, not for a product, but for a culture. Advertising, not for a product, but advertising for a belief system. And the belief system is that uh, being single is wonderful and that uh, sex has no consequences. It's just something that friends do. And, uh, and that, if anything, 
uh, the marriage end of it, yeah, you know what? It, it doesn't go well. Uh, in fact, one of the characters uh, gets married serially and divorced serially, and uh, and and that just goes to show that uh, you know he's he's a bit of a foolish fellow on on the show, and uh, and and so he he barges into these terrible marriages, and 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 isn't life better when he just puts that out of mind and stays single? And that's the message that his friends, uh, both tacitly and explicitly. Convey to him, and so uh, this uh, back to this fourteen or thirteen year old girl, and she gets dropped, and then what happens? She meets another one, and this one is the real one. Now, by the way, you can add ten years to her life and have her at the age of twenty four or twenty five, and she is also looking for Mister Right. Maybe you can add twenty years, and we can talk of her at thirty four or thirty five. And she's still looking for Mr. Right. But going all the way back 20 years earlier, her heart is being broken repeatedly. Now, I'm not even going to dwell for the moment on uh, what the sexual connection does. But uh, the, 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 the boosting of the emotional intensity once a physical connection comes into play is such that the roller coaster highs are even higher and the roller coaster lows are down to the very depths. And uh, I ask you, how, for how long can a girl have her heart repeatedly broken in exactly the same place and in exactly the same way uh, without it leaving lasting damage? And the answer is not that long, not that many. The answer is you'd be surprised how quickly a few of these emotional ups and downs it takes to damage a girl. And so when I say that uh, I, I'm opposed to uh, Valentine's Day being applied in, the, uh, in these youngest of levels and youngest of, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's terrible. And, um, and how's about uh, people, older people in their 20s, people who are mature, and they're in their 20s and 30s, but they're not married. And they, I mean, Valentine's Day is a great day to cement your relationship, right? Well, no, actually, any day would be fine for that. You don't actually have to wait till then. And uh, the, the, the pain that is inflicted, and again, I'm sorry, Men and women are different, okay? You, that's what you're going to hear from me. I'm sorry. Different species. Uh, I think that men are more similar to whales than they are to women. And, uh, uh, and, and the, uh, yeah, two different species. And so I feel perfectly uh, confident and comfortable saying that, uh, that it is the woman who is going through these repeated encounters it is the woman who believes every time, oh, this one will be Mr. Right. And then when it turns out it isn't, she is the one who is hurt. Um, it is much more difficult for women to take uh, rejection than it is for men. This is one of the reasons that uh, sales, the sales profession, which is a profession I greatly admire. I, I, I believe it's a wonderful profession. It's a profession of, of dignity and a profession of morality. It's a profession that if you become good at it, um, you are good at so many other aspects of life. 
it means you never need to search for a job because a competent sales professional is always in need. Uh, a competent sales professional can write his own ticket. And, uh, and it is a profession. It's not, you know, not something anyone can do. It's something for which significant training is required and, uh, and talent is built up and, and improved. Um, for women, it's a much harder profession than for men because part of sales is you have to be able to take rejection. And for many men, it's difficult. In fact, I would say that until uh, men have been trained, most men, find rejection to be truly painful and, and, and d distressing. Uh, but eventually, you can train a man to be able to withstand rejection, and you know what? He's the better man for it. For a woman, it's a lot harder. Women do not take rejection that well. And, you know, people are grappling with it in the workplace right now. In fact, ladies... I'll let you in on a little secret here that uh, everybody else withholds from you and everyone else shelters you from. But um, one of the scariest things for men in business today is the problem of women crying. What do you do when a woman starts getting tearful? And maybe she doesn't even burst into full-scale tears, but you see the tears welling up in her eyes. And ladies, for most of us guys, that is close to unendurable. And in the work environment, it's like really weird for us. We don't know how to deal with it because we've just had a really heavy session, you know, with Tom and, um, and we had to come down on him and we, we said, look, your metrics aren't up to, to, uh, to projections and you yourself made those projections. Uh, we are going to have to replace you. I mean, look, I'm sorry, Tom, but, you know, this is business and I'm telling you exactly what you would tell anyone who reported to you, which is that if you cannot get these numbers up in the next quarter, we are going to be replacing you. And um, Tom uh, puts out his hand, takes your hand, shakes it, and says, I appreciate the candor. Uh, I am heading back, and uh, I am confident that I can deliver what's needed. And off he goes, and our relationship is fine. Everything's Now, after that, Jerry comes in, and, uh, and we, we have to say to Jerry, you know, look, um, we don't, you know, the, the way you handled uh, your, uh, your responsibilities this quarter has not been adequate. It's not been okay. You're losing people. You're upsetting people. You, your, your interpersonal skills obviously aren't working. I myself haven't seen evidence of it. Our, our friendship and our working relationship goes back years. But there's no question about it that people who work for you and report to you do feel it. And, um, and so the question is, you know, what are we going to do about it? And Jerry says, look, uh, I'm going to get coaching on this, and, um, and you can count on it. I'm going to get this right. You, you are correct. I, I don't know how to handle my reports, and I'm going to improve. And he shakes my hand, and he says, I appreciate you telling me. And now Jennifer comes in, and um, we steal ourselves, ladies, because we, we know this isn't going to be any good. Right. We have no problem speaking to Tom and Jerry. We're good with that. But Jennifer comes in now, and we have to explain to her that her performance has been subpar and that um, uh, she's got two months to get things right, and after that we're going to have to replace her. Well, okay, you know what happens, and it's hard, and I totally understand it. I'm not, I'm not even saying women should toughen up because 
in so doing, they make themselves a little less feminine, a little less woman. When a man toughens up and is able to take rejection and can be kicked uh, while he's down and then he picks himself up and comes back, every time he does that, he is a better, stronger man. But every time a woman suppresses those tears and every time a woman sets her shoulders back, sticks out her jaw and says, punch me again, I can take it, She's not doing herself a favor at the deepest levels of identity. And so um, there we, uh, we have some of the differences, but we still haven't got to the core of Valentine's Day, which is exactly what we'll do coming back. Meanwhile, uh, reminder, please, I would love for you to go to the website, my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and um, visit the store. Also, you should sign up for Thought Tools, the free weekly email, if you don't already have it, because that way you stay in touch and you receive a, a, an effective spiritual strategy every week. Um, also, I'm able to let you know where I am. Also, you can write to me, which I enormously value. You just go to the uh, Contact Us section of the website, shoot me an email, and I will get those. I, I'd love to read some of those that I've received in the last week. If I have time on this show, I will do that. If not, I'll postpone it for a future event and uh, pick some to read to you. Some of them really very, very perceptive, very encouraging. Some of them very helpful, uh, making observations and even criticisms that I've taken to heart. So uh, go ahead. You need a rabbi.com, and I'll be right back in a minute. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. You have to ID your voters. You have to call them up. Know them by their first name. You call them in the morning. You bring them breakfast. You drive them in your own car, your private car. You drive them to the caucus. This is what a get-out-the-vote operation is. GOTV, it's called. Well, Donald Trump's version of GOTV is get on television. Now, that's very effective, but it ain't the same thing. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. So moving along with this 30-second episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, welcome and thank you so much for being there while I'm here. And uh, look, the, the question I have to ask is, um, what is greater? The person who does one supreme act of heroism through which he redeems his whole life or the person who consistently and meticulously every single day does small acts of goodness. And I'm going to suggest that... Uh, while I detract nothing at all from the, the person who does the heroic act, and what I'm thinking of, of here explicitly is, that, and you all know these stories as I do, um, you know, the, 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 the young man whose life was going nowhere, and he, he, was, uh, he was becoming part of a really bad crowd, and he'd already had some troubles with the law, and then and then what happens is he joins the military and uh, 
and he has an opportunity to to do something unbelievably heroic, and he does it. You know, and it's wonderful. It's a great story of salvation, and it's marvelous. And uh, and you know, we're right to be moved by it. The trouble is that we find ourselves more moved by that kind of life story than we do about a far more common story, but one which, in fact, is actually far greater and far more heroic. I'm talking about now not the man who has messed up on everything and, uh, and, and has a sort of leaves behind a trail of, of calamity wherever he goes, and then all of a sudden, in one glorious moment, he redeems himself with a, a fantastic act of heroism and self. And look, like I said, it's wonderful. But I'm now talking about uh, the, the man for the moment, but it's women as well, but I'm talking about the man um, who does everything good and right. He was a, uh, a good son to his parents, uh, he got married and became a good husband to his wife. Uh, they had children, and he became a good and devoted father to their children. And every single day, whether he feels like it or not, and ladies, there's a lot of days we don't feel like it, he goes off to work. Whether it's Monday or whether it's Friday, whether it's Tuesday, or, he picks himself up and goes to work every single day. And uh, he does the best job of which he's capable and he comes home after work, doesn't stop at a bar, doesn't have affairs, doesn't carry on, doesn't, uh, doesn't defraud his company, doesn't do any, just com comes home, takes care of his family, um, builds up a saving account, provides some security. That's the other kind of guy. And the trouble is that, again, the culture has conditioned us to somehow uh, become awestruck by the first guy, and there's stories about him, and there's television specials about him, and, and they're all, okay, fine. But nobody applauds the second guy. Nobody does anything at all that is, uh, that, that reflects how society should view the second person. Right? No, no medals, no banquets, no honors, no streets named after him. He's not a politician. He's a guy who does his job, looks after his family, and is a great citizen every single day of the year, every single year of his life. Now, that is out there, right? But we don't make a fuss about it. And the, the reason is that we human beings um, have a, uh, a way that the good Lord built us, which is that we tend to take for granted the commonplace. The more we see something, the more natural and the more normal it is. And, uh, you know, look, uh, everybody uh, of a certain age remembers the shock they felt the first time they turn on the television on that Tuesday morning on the uh, uh, 11th of September 2001 and saw uh, the plumes of smoke rising from the two buildings of the World Trade Center that were on fire. I mean, everybody remembers the, it felt like a, a punch in the solar plexus. And yet today, um, after many years have elapsed, you can look at exactly the same picture that, that threw you, I mean, it really it changed your blood pressure when you saw it back then, 
you look at the same picture now, and it has no impact on you at all. Why? Because you've seen it a hundred times since then. When you see something a lot of times, when, when something becomes commonplace, we lose our sense of wonder and amazement at it. And this is, um, you know, we've we got to ask ourselves, is, is this a good thing? Well, it depends. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is that um, if you had just encountered your spouse, if you could sort of imagine that situation, assuming you're married, and uh, he or she did something for you, the kind of thing that he or she does for you three times a week, the first time it happens, you'd be astounded. You'd want to tell all your friends, you can't believe what this person did for me. And now you've seen it hundreds of times, and we take it for granted. Do you see where I'm going with the problem of Valentine's Day? You see, what's really needed, and, and if, there's, if there's one lesson that I, I myself take away from this, and one lesson that I would leave you with, it is the great gift you can give your marriage of appreciating your spouse 365 days a year not on Valentine's Day. Now you might say, <clears throat> what's the harm? <clears throat> what's the harm, right? Uh, appreciate them on Valentine's Day and all the other days. We are not like that. We human beings um, have certain foibles in us. And uh, one of them is that if you elevate something to a high level of excitement, a high level of tension, we can't keep it at that for any length of time. And so by elevating Valentine's Day as this day to express your love, and oh, it's, this is the day of love, and we'll still talk about St. Valentine and see what he might say about what it's become. But uh, the trouble is that by uh, making Valentine's Day the big fuss that it is, that actually makes it less likely that we'll keep it up the rest of the year. It makes it less likely that will show our spouse the love and the appreciation that is their due right every day of the year. And that's why doing it on Valentine's Day is, is not harmless at all. It's actually harmful. Uh, it makes it less likely that we're going to be doing the most wonderful marriage-affirming and marriage-enhancing thing you could possibly do, which is express appreciation and gratitude every day. But we don't do that. And Valentine's Day is one of the culprits. Not the only culprit, it's one of the culprits. But, uh, but obviously, the, the problem is that because we see it every day, because our spouse expresses goodness to us in, in many different ways, whether it's in how they look after our children, it's how they look after us, it's the, it's the warmth and the love and the passion and the intimacy that they grant us exclusively, um, these are, are very special things. And if, if you were just born fully sentient as an adult human being, and you suddenly found yourself in this relationship, and there you were, can you imagine? I mean, you'd want to write sonnets, you'd want to sing a song, you'd want to express your irrepressible joy at being with another person in this relationship like this. But uh, because 
you've already been there for three years or four years or nine years or 15 years or whatever it is, it kind of becomes routine. And we almost, in a perverse kind of way, we almost accept that our marriages have become routine and it's now about, uh, you know, the laundry and the missing socks and it's about, uh, did anyone put gas in the car? And, and it's become all the, the necessary routines of life. Well, yes, uh, that is true. And Valentine's Day does the opposite of what we'd want to do. What we'd want to do is say, you know, enough of that. We've got to make sure that on every day there is a little bit of an expression of what it was that brought us together in the first place. The shared vision, the shared dreams, the infatuation with one another, the sheer delight at being together. A little bit of that has to be recaptured. But if you just focus on doing that one day a year, forget about it. It's no good. It makes it harder to do the rest of the time. And so that's why I say start your new relationship with perhaps the most important person in your life, not on February the 14th, but on February the 15th or on February the 13th, either the day before or the day after, and then make it a feature of every single day. And you can talk to him or her, and you can say, I've just decided. Or by the way, you can also have him listen to this if you feel it's worth it. Uh, the uh, I've just decided that you know we're 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 just becoming two socioeconomic cogs that happen to live under the same roof, each struggling to get through their their responsibilities and obligations and days, and that which brought us together, the the magic and the mystery and the miracle of our togetherness, has like gone. How sad is that? And folks. Valentine's Day just is not the answer. Not even close. It just isn't the answer. And uh, I uh, will tell you that where a little bit of the answer does lie is in an audio program that uh, Susan and I prepared for you called Madam I'm Adam. And uh, if you write that name out, Madam I'm I apostrophe, apostrophe N I'm Adam, you write it out, the first thing you'll notice is that it's a palindrome, right? Like the sentence, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. Uh, that too is a palindrome. Well, Madam, I'm Adam is palindromic. Now, why did we call the program Madam, I'm Adam? Because it's palindromic? Yes, uh, to show that marriage can be read from both ends. In other words, you can come at it from the woman's side, and if done correctly, it is a marvel and a, and, and, a, and a miracle, something that not only is fulfilling for the woman, but is the way that society functions better. The kind of citizens that are created by families are really, really, really better than the kind of citizens that are created in, um, well, you know the alternative as well as I do. So... Uh, and then read it from the man's point of view. And from the man's point of view, it's exactly the same. Also a marvel and a joy, at, if it's done right. And, uh, and so here you've got something which each person should feel profoundly grateful to the other person. Each spouse should feel 
uh, filled with appreciation for the other because it really is and should be a two-way partnership. So that's Madam, I'm Adam. And uh, there's two hours of biblically-based data in there on the correct uh, this is like the best instruction manual for marriage I know of uh, it's it's really exactly that it's a it's a marriage you know the sub the subtitle says it all uh, marriage decoding marriage secrets from Eden and and that's exactly right the first few chapters of the Bible are really a glimpse into God's mind it's God's intention for how men and women uh, can best and most effectively and most happily live together so uh, head over to rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com, and take a look, read up, and uh, maybe listen to a segment of uh, Madam, I'm Adam, and see if it's something that someone in your life could benefit from. If not you, then somebody close to you who either is getting married or wants to improve a marriage or build more passion into a marriage, that's where all the dope lies. That's where all the information can be found. Back in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. Well, that's what they are, right? If, if you're struggling and you're maybe thinking about becoming a male or thinking about becoming a girl or you're not sure, you're in the middle. That's an interesting one. I've never seen that one before, I have to admit. Even as a demigirl, I have never seen that particular <laughs> I love trigender, too. What is trigender? So you yeah, have three tri-gender? different genders? Yeah, if you can get us a description yeah. on trigender, again, try not to search your own websites for that. Yeah. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. And it is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, we take a look at Valentine's Day and its applicability to, well, shall we say friends. Uh, Does Valentine's Day have any application whatsoever uh, to people who are not married? I don't think so. Why? What am I saying? Well, look, uh, here it is. Remember I said earlier we should take a look at the ideal. So, yes, I'm not naive. I, I know that uh, I know how things work, and I know where we're at today. I understand the depth of the cultural decline. I understand the, the collapse of the values that once made the family strong, and that made America strong. But ideally, at least, and by the way, I've seen the system uh, taught and, um, and, and to some extent maintained by many pastors at many of the churches I speak at during the course of a year, uh, and some of them really do pull it off. What am I talking about? Well, it's basically what Jewish folks do, and it's what many Christian folks do, and that is that, um, that if you are a young person and not ready yet for marriage, then you mix in groups, not in pairs. Okay, so... So there are events, there are activities where there's a group of people, a group of boys and a group of girls, and and that's fine, and that's lovely, and it's dandy, and there's no problem, and nobody gets hurt. Uh, Then, and so there's no dating. It isn't dating. It's socializing in groups. 
And then eventually uh, the, the time comes where you are ready to get married. At that point, you start courting. And courting is a different game altogether. Courting, you do not declare your undying love and uh, you don't get deeply romantically involved. And as a matter of fact, you even minimize physical contact altogether. Why? <laughs> because it's very simple. It, it, perhaps the most important decision you're going to make in your life, don't you want to be thinking with your head? I mean, you don't even want to be thinking with your heart, let alone with other parts of your body. You only want to be thinking with your head. And the trouble is that as soon as the powerful magic of touch begins to play its role, you're in trouble because you're no longer thinking. And so issues that might be deal breakers get swept under the carpet because all you want to do is be together. Touch is what does that. That's what changes it. You know, we had a rule when our kids were really little. Um, we, we discovered very quickly that uh, there'd be howls of outrage coming from the next room. And we'd go in, and it would be a cacophony of, he hit me, she hit me, she hit me first. No, he hit me first. And, um, and then you try and unravel this, this uh, cat's cradle and, uh, well, you did hit me first. I didn't. I just touched you. And that was when it dawned on us. Any touch equals a mighty punch. In other words, we do not make this a subjective decision. We make it an objective decision. Subjective decision is, well, uh, you punched me hard. I just touched you softly and it didn't hurt. Well, yes, it did hurt. No, but you hit me back really hard. Okay. Everyone can agree on who touched who first. Them's the guilty party. That's how it works, okay? Um, just with a touch. And, uh, and in exactly the same way, we, we realized that um, uh, when our children, boy and girls, were dating, courting, you'll pardon me, courting, I, even I slip into the evil vernacular, uh, when, they're, when they were courting, uh, they also know the rule, which is that um, it's very difficult to draw the line, isn't it? Like, what is okay? Uh, a hug? A, a snuggle? A handhold? You know, an arm around the shoulder? Arm around the waist? How about somewhere in between? Look, uh, it becomes difficult to decide at what point you draw the line. In the same way as we said with the kids, um, we're not going to draw a line with how hard because it's very difficult. It's impossible to, to decide where that line is. So we'll do that a little bit differently. We'll just say whoever touches. And similarly in this area as well, uh, what we did is exactly the same thing. We said, look, uh, you're better off without any touching at all um, because as soon as you start skin-on-skin -skin contact, the way the good Lord designed us is that skin-on-skin -skin contact is absolutely irresistible. When you have some, you want more. There's no question about it. I mean, the, the proof is that humanity is still here. And, uh, and so you can avoid the, 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 the problem from the outset. So, okay, look, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying it's for everybody, and I'm not saying everyone can do it. 
I'm just telling you that in an idealized model, um, there is no physical contact before marriage, and there's no dating before marriage. There's group and social activities, and then when you're ready for marriage, you have courting. What is courting? Well, courting, as I said, doesn't involve physical contact, number one. Number two, uh, fairly early on, you decide if it has uh, merit. When I say fairly early on, I'm talking four, five, six, seven meetings, get-togethers, dates, if you like. Uh, no more than that, because you should know very easily by then if the answer is no. And as long as you are thinking with your heads, and, and here I speak mainly to the guys, as long as you're thinking with your head, you'll know fairly quickly if uh, it's a no. If you say to yourself, nah, you know what, this is not the person I want to be with for the rest of my life. Now, if you're already engaged in touch and you're no longer thinking purely with your head, well, there's going to be aspects of her that you find appealing and, uh, and, and very attractive. And they overwhelm the cautionary notes that, was, that were coming in your head. And uh, this is one of the reasons for uh, the difficulties that so many couples have in marriage, because the decision to go ahead was made not purely with the head. And so it's not a decision. It's an emotional feeling. It's, it's a physical seduction. Not intended by anybody, but that's how it plays out anyways. And so uh, in an idealized form, um, yeah, well, Valentine's Day just doesn't belong. It has, no, it has absolutely no practical function. And so now looking at, uh, at uh, a, a couple that is courting towards marriage and, and uh, moving ahead towards marriage, so th that's a different story. Uh, a certain number of dates, and as long as everyone's thinking with their heads, you know very quickly. You may not know that it's a yes, but you certainly will know early if it's a no. Uh, if it's a possibility, then you, you keep going. But under no circumstances would we um, allow courting to continue like for six months, let alone a year or two years. I mean, there's absolutely no way we would allow uh, any daughter of ours to waste that much of her time on something that, that, is, uh, that is no good. In other words, we just don't believe that it should take six months to, uh, to determine. Why? Well, because it is primarily a decision. It's not an emotion, and I'm sure you've heard that from many other people. But um, I will just recount a story that I tell in uh, a book that I wrote called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And you'll, you'll find that on my website as well at uh, youneedarabbi.com. And one of the stories in the book was a, um, a, uh, a gentleman I met. He was one of these financial whiz kids when he was younger. When I met him, he was in his uh, late 50s. And um, he had been married for 30 years or something. And his, um, his wife, was uh, was a polio victim. She needed a certain number of hours a day in, in, a, in a breathing apparatus. And uh, she, anyway, what happened? Um, he was a financial whiz kid. He was uh, highly eligible, and he married this, uh, this young woman. And um, six months after the wedding, she contracted polio. 
had, you know what? It was even less than that. It was less. Uh, it was a very, very short period of time after the wedding. She contracted polio. And uh, not only would she never, ever be able to have children, but she was, uh, she was going to be confined um, to a bed, basically. And, uh, of course, all his relatives said, look, um, this is one of those situations where uh, things went wrong and uh, you have to end the marriage. You know, you've got your life ahead of you. And uh, you have to you have to end the marriage, and you know you can you can you know you can help get her into a, uh, a facility that that copes and helps people in that situation. And he didn't do it. And I, I remember saying to him, "Why?" So explain to me what you, like what did you say to your relatives? He said, "Well, I wasn't religious at the time. I didn't I hadn't didn't know God. I didn't know anything. All I knew was that." Uh, I'd made a promise, I'd made a commitment, and, and we said in sickness or in health and, you know, until death us do part, and he said, I don't know any other way other than keeping a commitment. I, I just don't know. He says, so, yes, it, it changed my whole picture of what my life was going to be like, but um, that's that's what I did, and, uh, and, you know, when I knew him, he used to bring her to events at my synagogue. He had modified one of his vehicles. And he used to literally carry her out to the car, and he'd modified the passenger seat to be able to take her, her wheelchair and everything. Anyway, he was too wonderful to her, you know. And um, uh, one afternoon, I, um, I got a phone call from her. Uh, she was weeping hysterically, and so I, I said to her, you know, don't worry, I'll, I'll come over, I'll come over. They lived 15 minutes away, and so uh, 20 minutes later, I was there, and she was still crying hysterically, and I eventually calmed her down a bit. He was not there. He was uh, out somewhere, and I said, what's the matter? And she's in her bed, you understand. She, she, her home, her, she, uh, she slept in a sort of a hospital bed arrangement. I mean, it was an unbelievable. This man took care of her his whole life. He died a few years ago. And, uh, and so I said, what's, what's the matter? She said, um, uh, I asked him, so referring to her husband, I asked him if he loved me. And uh, he said um, he wasn't sure. So I said, uh, what were you thinking? She says, well, I'm so miserable. I'm so horrible to him. I'm always complaining that I, just, I couldn't believe that he still loves me. And I asked him, and he didn't say, yes, he does. He, you know, he said sometimes he does, and sometimes he's not sure. And I said, so what, what's the problem? She says, well, I want to be loved. I said, yes, I understand. But tell me what your biggest nightmare is. She said, my biggest nightmare is that he gets so sick of me that he uh, puts me in a, an institution or a hospital, and I never see him again. I said to her, well, why do you think he takes care of you? She said, well, I thought it was because he loved me. And now that he's not sure, I really do think he's going to put me in an institution. I said, no. Uh, he doesn't do it because he loves you. He does it because he promised to always take care of you. When you got married, that's what he's doing it because of a promise. And she started howling with agony again. She said, oh, that's even worse than I thought. He, he never loved me. He doesn't. I said, you don't understand. Marriage is about a commitment. The love is a bonus. And obviously, there are times that he loves you, and maybe all the time. When you asked him, it's sometimes difficult. A guy says, yes, he's not sure. It's, it's not always that simple for a man. But the bottom line is that he could not 
love you any better than the way he takes care of you. And she said, so are you saying I never have to worry about, I said, I promise you, I promise you until the day one of you dies, there's no way he's ever going to uh, to leave you and abandon you. It's just not going to happen. And um, soon after that, uh, he came in and she she just beamed such love at him and she just... Uh, she just radiated, and she, she called him over, and she just threw her arms around him and so, said how much she loves him. He told her he loves her too. And um, <laughs> uh, and that evening he called me, and he said, what on earth was going on there before I came home? So I explained to him, and I told him. And he, you know, he, he kind of didn't get it because his whole life, more years of his life had been spent in this situation than, than before he got married. And... Um, and, and there it was, this 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 incredibly deep commitment, quite remarkable. And uh, he really was a remarkable man. She passed away, and um, he remarried, I'm happy to say. And uh, he had uh, a very, very happy second marriage, and uh, and then he passed away, and uh, so it went. But... Uh, but it was uh, it was a very remarkable thing to get to know him and uh, and to to share his experience. The point being that um, a decision is made. That's what it's all about. It's a decision and it's a commitment. That's what a marriage is. It's not it's not just living together with a piece of paper. It's totally different. And that's what uh, not everybody fully understands. Uh, quick pause, and I'll be right back. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Paid non-attorney spokesperson Adam Pulaski of the Pulaski Law Firm with principal office in Houston, Texas is the attorney responsible for the content of this ad. This ad is not legal advice and the choice of a lawyer should not be based solely upon advertisement. Services may not be available in all states. Attention Zarelto users. If you or a loved one took Zarelto and suffered a serious bleeding event, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Zarelto is a popular prescription blood thinner used to prevent blood clots and protect patients from strokes. These serious bleeding events have led to numerous cases of hospitalization and even death. Phone lines are open 24-7. Call 800-630-6720. That's 800-630-6720. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. As uh, we continue episode number 32, this is the 32nd show, and uh, we're uh, into the fifth segment of today's show as we look at uh, Valentine's Day bar humbug. <laughs> and no, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not opposed to love. Uh, I, um, I, I love love and, uh, and on every level, but I just don't see the relevance of, uh, of Valentine's Day. Not only don't I see the relevance, I think it is damaging. I think it is destructive. I think it is harmful. And uh, I've, I've covered a good deal of why that is. Um, what is love, by the way? Yeah, we're you know, calmly throwing around the term, what is love? And I'm sure you know as many dictionary definitions of it as I do. But uh, I've got to tell you, you know, I'm, my, my contact with reality, my guide, my lens to the world is uh, ancient Jewish wisdom. And so when, when I want to get to the core of something, I usually go straight to the Hebrew scriptures and investigate it from there. Uh, one of the general rules is that the very first time a word appears 
in the five books of Moses, that would be the place to start looking to gain your basic understanding of what that word and the concept it represents really mean. So um, how about love? Where is the first time we find it used? Did Adam love Eve? Well, I'm sure he did, but that's not mentioned. Uh, Noah and his wife, Naamah, bet you didn't know his, his wife's name was Naamah, but uh, then, of course, that would mean you haven't yet heard the audio program called The Gathering Storm, Decoding the Secrets of Noah and the Flood. That's right, The Gathering Storm. And then uh, if you would, and you can hear a bit of it on the website, by the way, you need a rabbi.com. And if you, um, if you had listened to that, you would know that Noah's wife was Naamah. And so did Noah love Naamah? Uh, did he scratch on a, uh, an oak tree near where he was building the ark, a big heart and an arrow through it? And then he wrote in there, N-L-N, Noah loves Naamah? No, apparently not. That's, that's not there either. So where's the first couple? Where do we find the first time? Well, the very first time we find the word used is that um, Adam, excuse me, Abraham loved his son Isaac. Now, this is very interesting because there is something special about a father-son relationship. A man-woman relationship is, is primarily what we're talking about in this show. But in order to understand what love is about, we really do need to get a sense of what man-woman relationships are, actually what um, father-son relationships are about. What's special about a father-son relationship? How does a father love a son? Well, let me, uh, let me put it this way. A father who loves his son wants only the best for his son. It is a completely giving relationship. Would you not agree? He just wants his son to have him. That's one of the reasons that in small towns across America, uh, to this very day, all the way down the main street, you will still see stores that have above the store names like uh, Smith and Son. Right? The, the, the appellation and son is very common. Why? Because... Men just love bringing their sons into their business and knowing that their sons will then have that. It's like, my goodness, you're willing to give everything you've created over to this other human being? Well, yeah, not to a stranger, but to my son, absolutely. I want my son to have it. It's a totally giving relationship. Fathers just want to give to their sons. They don't need anything back. Now, why that's so interesting is because Hebrew words almost always break down to essential meanings. Okay, they, they actually mean something. So uh, the, the word love in Hebrew, it's three Hebrew letters, and it's pronounced ahav. And um, the three letters break down into two separate words, one letter and then the remaining two. And the one letter is the first person singular, I, and then the second part of the word love, this, the, the last two letters, spell out the word give. And there you've got it. There is the definition of what real love is. I give. It's just about wanting to give. I just want to give. And my friends, that is one of the best ways you can have of finding out and defining whether something is real love. 
is there something you want or do you just want to give? Now, the only time you have that, as I said, father and son, but also in a marriage, because you have everything you want. You, you're, you're in the marriage, and so you want to give to your spouse, and that's where love can be found, should be found, isn't always, but should. But how about, how about when you're dating? How about you're on a date? How about it's your girlfriend or your boyfriend? Surely you can love them, and haven't you even told them, I love you, when you're in the grip of passion or emotion? But wait a sec. You see, it's not, it can't be genuine. Because when you're dating somebody, you're not in an only wanting to give mode. You're also in a wanting to get mode. It's not sure what it is you're, you're wanting to get. You might be wanting to get closer. You might be wanting to get intimate. You might even be wanting to get married. But it hasn't is been established yet. You're not married. And so, therefore, you are in a wanting mode as well as in a giving mode. Do you follow what I'm saying? When you're a little child, you're in a total taking mode, right? You don't even know what giving means. When is the first time you even find out that giving is fun? When, uh, when you discover the opposite gender and you find that giving a gift to your little girlfriend or your little boyfriend is, is sort of something you never thought about before. Um, you know, unless you had a very special relationship and you gave things to your parents out of sheer love. And there are some children do have that. Some families are fortunate. But, um, uh, but it isn't until you're married. And so that's why it is. It isn't until you're married that true love can take place. And I know you've, you've sort of heard this said before, you know, love is what comes with marriage. No, this is very real. It's not, this is not just a sentiment. This is very real. The point being that love is an obsession with wanting to give to the other person. And this is why it is true that parents love their children more than children love their parents. Because parents only want to give to their children. But children are takers, inevitably. It's a different, it's an entirely different relationship. And, uh, and so that's why it is that uh, it's only in a state of marriage that there's nothing any longer you're trying to get from the other person, or they shouldn't be. And so therefore, all you want to do is give. And that's the definition of love. Ahav, in Hebrew, I give. That's exactly, and so what could be more perfect than the very first instance of its usage in Scripture being between a father and a son, Adam and, uh, excuse me, Abraham and his son Isaac. Uh, we don't even find it used with Abraham and his wife Sarah but we do find it with Abraham and his son because of this point I'm making, which is that uh, it's most easily understood when you think in terms of father-son, and you can then extrapolate from there to what marriage ought to be like. But the father-son biological relationship is so basic and so powerful, it is literally nothing but a giving relationship on the part of the father. So naturally, um, the, uh, Abraham loves his son Isaac. Uh, later on, Isaac the son marries Rebekah, and again, after he marries her, it says, and he loved her. Uh, Jacob loved Rachel, and um, their oldest son was Joseph, and Jacob loves Joseph. 
And with one exception, that pretty much sums up all the love affairs, if you like, in the book of Genesis, all the loves. Um, the one exception, the one exception is um, you, you might remember that uh, Jacob has a daughter called Dina, Dinah, some people say. And uh, Dina was um, uh, raped. She was attacked and raped by uh, people among whom Jacob and his family were living, the people of Shechem. And, um, and it says that he loved her. It says that he loved Dina, the daughter of Jacob, the, the perpetrator. And it's very unusual, and note, much is, is made of this, and I don't think I'm going to go into this in any depth in, in this particular show. It, uh, it, it's part of a different discussion, because ordinarily, uh, when men rape women, they are filled with a sense of self-loathing, and they just want to get away. They, they certainly do not want to stay around, let alone the feelings of the woman, obviously. But even the, the feelings of most men in that situation are feelings of self-revulsion, too. And uh, there's absolutely no desire to stick around and uh, try and form a, a relationship. That's what makes this particular case in Genesis um, so extraordinary and so very unusual. And, uh, the, uh, and so the theme of, uh, of, of Valentine's Day just doesn't fit. It just doesn't make sense because, again, it's, it's not on this level. It's not, it's not on the depths of what love is really all about. It trivializes it. It turns it into something superficial. It turns it into something that, uh, you know, you buy her some perfume in a heart-shaped bottle and she buys some uh, cushions shaped like hearts and some balloons shaped like hearts and, oh, we love each other. But it isn't true. That's not what it's talking about. And altogether, uh, even the idea of the heart as the symbol of love, where does that come from? Let me give you a clue. It existed long before Cavendish and long before the discoveries of the, uh, the role of the heart in the pumping of blood. And so, really, if you think about it, when poets, uh, and, and, you know, this goes back a long time, when poets spoke about, oh, I love her with all my heart, uh, they could just as easily have said, oh, I love her with my elbow. Right? You see what I'm saying? There's, there was absolutely no reason for heart. And yet, even though you would have thought that different poets in, in different societies, you know, French poets might have said, I love you with my genitals. Uh, English poets might have said, I love you with my brain. Uh, German poets might have said, I love you with my heart and my mind. Uh, you know, and, and yet none of that is true. They all settled on the same organ as the uh, harbor of love, the heart. It makes no sense. You could have just as easily say, I loved her with all my kidneys. Or, uh, I mean, yeah, you, you get the point, right? I mean, I loved her with my appendix, and she ripped it out and dropped it in a blender and hit puree and shattered my emotions. My appendix will never be the same, right? People could say. But no, everybody with heart. And so, you know, if anyone says, what's the theme of uh, Valentine's Day? For heaven's sake, it's pink hearts. Stop already. It's enough with the pink hearts. But where does it come from? Where do they get the heart from? Why the heart? Well, 
it's very simple, and that is for 32 occasions, well, let me not let me not go into that detail again, that doesn't belong in this podcast. Why don't I just say that uh, in the Old Testament, in the in the five books of Moses specifically, it uses the phrase, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. But here's the part that's that's really interesting. So the most influential book in Western civilization comes up with the heart as how you should love. You should love with all your heart. That's what it says. And so not surprisingly, cultures that sprang from the Bible used the idea of the heart. But if this is correct, then cultures that had nothing to do with the Bible should in their love songs and poetry not use the heart, you know, as long as they had no early contact. And so sure enough, in Chinese early poetry, in, uh, in uh, what passed for poetry in other parts of, of the world, uh, no, the heart isn't there. It's not used. It, but wait a second. What about the poetry of an amazing Indian poet? His name was Rabindranath Tagore. It's two words. His first name was Rabindranath, and his last name was Tagore. And he lived until, I'm going to say, about the Second World War. I mean, just about the Second World War was in when he died. He, got, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913, I think it was. And, um, and he was a Bengali poet, a poet from India, from the province of Bengal. And, um, and what a remarkable poet wrote a lot in English as well. And uh, here's one of his poems, Unending Love. I seem to have loved you in numberless forms, numberless times, in life after life, in age after age, forever. My spellbound heart. He didn't say my spellbound kidneys or my spellbound lungs or my spellbound knee or ankle. No, my spellbound heart. Later on, he says, you and I have floated here on the stream that brings from the fount at the heart of time. Yes. And so how did an Indian poet come up with it? Well, very simply, uh, because India was colonized by the British. And the British colonized India. Uh, many people think because of the desire to get the wealth and the gold and the wealthy and the jewels of India. No. They actually originally went to India because of a desire to bring the gospel, to bring religion and the, the faith in the Bible to the Indians. That was the original purpose. Now, you may laugh at that, as some people would, because you don't know, and you've just bought into the uh, popular misconception of what British colonialism was all about. But today, uh, so much of the early literature of the colonial period has been uncovered and released and uh, and made available that uh, anybody can see what, what I found and, and, and discover the truth, which is that to a large extent, and yes, there were obviously companies involved, the uh, Dutch East India Company, there were many other companies uh, that, were, uh, that were formed um, in order to do exactly this, but they were formed and the, the, the government's encouragement to bring about these colonizations was strictly to make it possible for missionaries to go to these places, Africa and to India. And Rabindranath Tagore was, was inculcated with Western culture. So sure enough, uh, Western culture always associates it with a heart. 
But wait, that's not all. I'll tell you more in just a moment. Wait right there. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Are you looking to save 50, 60, even 70% on your phone bill? Well, here's a tip. Broadvoice.com. Hi, it's Brad Staggs of Blaze TV here. Broadvoice offers high-quality phone service for only $8.95 a month. You may ask, how can I save so much money? What's the catch? Well, the secret is the technology. Broadvoice uses VoIP technology that takes analog audio signals from your phone, turns them into digital data, and then transfers them over the Internet. This means crystal clear sound and cheaper phone bills. Broadvoice has been ranked in the Deloitte Technology Fast 500 and Inc. 500 as one of the fastest growing private companies in America. Get Broadvoice right now for only $8.95 a month. Keep your existing phone number for free and Broadvoice will send you their easy plug-in adapter free. All this and you get unlimited local calling for just $8.95 a month. Plus, for a limited time, Broadvoice will even give you your first month free. Do what we did here at Blaze Radio. Make the switch today at broadvoice.com or call 888-332-8036. 888-332-8036. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay, uh, coming into the home stretch of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. And I said I'd uh, tell you something further, which I think is even, even more interesting, perhaps. And, um, and that is that um, not only is the heart associated with the emotion of love strictly because of the wording in the Bible, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, uh, but uh, the English word love, where does that come from? Well, interestingly enough, the Hebrew word for heart is lev. Now, you know that vowels are secondary in Hebrew. So the, the correct way for me to, to have said what I just said is that the Hebrew word for, for um, heart in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for heart is lv. That's right, because the vowels are not there, only the consonants. And so how you pronounce it, doesn't vary very much if you pronounce it lave or love. In other words, the English word L-O-V-E, love, is just a, another variation of the Hebrew word for heart. So once again, we've got this heart-love connection, again, rooted in the Lord's language and rooted in the Bible. And, um, and there it is. So next time you notice the silly pink hearts floating around on Valentine's Day. And let's just forget Valentine's Day, all right? Let's, let's, just, let's just not make it part of our lives anymore. It's become, I mean, it is, what do you mean become? It's nothing but a commercial exercise uh, to get people out and, um, and to go and waste money on, on silly tzatzkas that have absolutely no functional use whatsoever. I mean, really, do you really need a big helium balloon shaped like a pink heart? Come on. What a waste of money, a waste of time, and as I say, uh, far worse than the waste of time and the waste of money um, is the fact that it actually undermines the very thing you want to do, which is make more love, and uh, obviously it goes and ruins it. Furthermore, I want to tell you something else, that uh, as unhappy as I am with Valentine's Day, and uh, as unhappy as I hope I've made you feel about Valentine's Day. 
all of that fades into utter insignificance if we compare it to how unhappy St. Valentine himself would be if he would come back and see what people have made of Valentine's Day. Really, St. Valentine himself would be absolutely horrified. Why is that? Well, um, Valentine was a, um, about a maybe third century or something like that in the, uh, somewhere in that second or third century. He was a very early uh, Christian guy. And uh, uh, he must have been quite a courageous fellow. If the legends are correct, here is what happened. Um, Claudius II was, uh, was one of the emperors of, was the emperor of Rome at that time. And this was not a good man, not a good man at all. And uh, among the, uh, the things that Claudius of Rome did was he uh, prohibited marriage. He didn't want to see marriage. There were several reasons for this. Uh, one was that um, uh, he uh, promoted a licentious concupiscence in the culture, and marriage undermines that. And so this is one of the reasons that the left, uh, modern secular liberalism, has always tried to do whatever it can to undermine marriage in every possible way, because part of what the left wants is the conviction and the realization and the reality that people are nothing but animals, and one of the ways to do that is to spread um, rampant sexual activity and spread promiscuity so as that people will begin to think of themselves as nothing but, but animals. It's one of the reasons that the left promotes teenage promiscuity in schools. Oh, yes, it does. That's that is the hidden agenda of uh, sex ed, the whole sex education program, not designed to do absolutely nothing but uh, produce more promiscuity. And by the way, the proof of that is that um, where the, the figures, I mean, one of the nice things about bureaucrats is they keep records. And you can go back and see the extent to which um, teenage sexuality and pregnancies went up every single school district where they introduced sex ed, when they introduced it. And it's amazing to see, but it's not surprising because essentially the sex ed class is uh, just the perfect lead-in. And yes, boys and girls were given sex ed separately, but then they'd get together. And boys, for the first time, had a licensed endorsed, approved way to start talking to girls about sex. And, um, and so natural modesty was steamrolled, and away they went. And, uh, and you can, indeed, as I said, you can actually check the records, and it's the most amazing thing to see. And did this put any uh, obstacle in the way of expanding the sex ed program in the 60s and 70s? No, of course not. Absolutely not. Uh, they knew as well as I do. Everybody knew that this was promoting sexuality. But they used to say, oh, well, it's going to be safe sex for a change. Well, it hardly turned out to be that. But um, no, of course they didn't slow down the rollout of sex ed because it did exactly what it was meant to do. And so Claudius II was, was just an earlier practitioner of this idea that if you if you want to get people to forget God, if you want people to forget uh, the idea that God created human beings and that really human beings were nothing but the result of uh, animals mutating into humans, well then you really want to get them to be uh, sexually active. The way you do that is you undermine the family, you undermine marriage, and that's being done as effectively as in our age as Claudius II did in the third century in Rome.
And, uh, and that was one of the reasons. The other reasons were that um, a, a major, if not the major institution of ancient Rome was the military. And uh, the, the worry was that if men uh, were married, they would be uh, a little less uh, fearless about going into battle because, you know, now they have something to live for and their children, they'd worry about what would happen to the children if something happened to them. So best to just keep marriage out of the picture. And that's exactly what, uh, what he did. As always, the, uh, the uh, antidote or the obstacle or, or the combatant to uh, rampant secular fundamentalism and secular liberalism is, is the church, is religion. It's biblically-based Judeo-Christian thinking, of which uh, St. Uh, Valentine was um, a courageous example. And so he knew that, obviously, what he had to do was bring about marriage. And what he did was he worked very hard to, uh, to m help people in the church get married. So he, he brought people to faith, and then he encouraged them to get married. And so you can see why Valentine uh, himself would be uh, horrified at what it's become today. For him, love was only about marriage, right? And, uh, and, and he, he, at great risk to himself, worked on helping people find faith and then find marriage. And uh, I know he was tortured. I think he was probably executed by Claudius II as well. Uh, he certainly did not end his days comfortably, but I believe he ended them happily in the knowledge that he had done the right thing. He'd stood up for godly values um, at a time when they were under assault, um, I guess just as they really are today, come to think of it. And so uh, that was uh, Valentine. I don't think he'd go for the... the the pink hearts, I don't think that would be part of what he'd be about. I don't think he'd be crazy about, uh, um, you know, uh, seven- and eight-year-old children doing valentines to each other. I don't think he'd be into that. Um, I don't think he'd be into uh, single people doing valentines, to tell you the truth, right? I understand the reality of where we are today, and I understand it is what it is, and I understand, you know, people... Uh, uh, don't find it easy to get married before they've finished their uh, preparation for their livelihoods. I understand. It's, uh, things are tough. I'm not saying we can just slide back to the way things used to be. We have to cope with the realities we're dealing with today. But it's always helpful to at least remember what the ideal was. And uh, St. Valentine represented the ideal far more than Valentine's Day does under these circumstances. So. So don't let's do Valentine's Day. Let's not do it, okay? Let's, uh, let's start afresh. Let is, let's reset our relationships with our spouses on the 15th of February and then the 16th and the 17th and the 18th and all the way through February and into March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, December, and then January again, uh, every 365 days a year. Doing what? Well, you know, sometimes undertaking too much is a sure way of failing. It's one of the problems with New Year's resolutions. We think it only comes around once a year, so we better make it a big one. And then it's such a big one that we can't cope with it and we don't do it. Because we're human beings. We have our weaknesses, obviously. And so, uh, and so if I'm going to suggest to you a way to reset your marriage, and to start it not on the 14th of February, but on the 15th of February. 
what is something that is easy enough that each and every one of us could actually do, and each and every one of us can continue doing until it actually becomes built into us as an ongoing life habit. What would that be? It would be one thing, and that is to tell your spouse every day how much you appreciate her, or him, and him. I'm going to come back to, to the him part in a moment. But um, particularly what men can do for their wives, particularly, is please find something. And, and be sincere about this. You know, everybody, everybody can see through a phony. So, uh, so, you know, believe me, you're not that good an actor that you can pull it off. Neither am I. None of us are. There are a few real good actors, right, who, who, who could have. Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau could have done it, in my view. A great actor. But uh, for the rest of us, nah, be genuine about it. You've got to, every day, think and come up or observe one thing that your wife does for you that you profoundly appreciate. Something, something about her. Uh, you know, maybe it's that she, she always looks good. She's careful to always look good. She takes care of how she appears. She doesn't make herself look better when she goes out than when she's just with you. A lot of wives make a point of that, you know. And it takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort. But how wonderful that is to just always see your wife looking great as opposed to uh, the, the wives who make sure they're looking great when they go out, when they're going off to work, but when they're home with their husband, they just uh, they look like goodness knows what, something the dog brought in. Uh, awful. So maybe your wife does that. What a, what a wonderful thing that is and uh, how appropriate it would be. And please don't say she knows I appreciate her. That's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Expressing it is what's important, really. Expressing it is what's so important. You know, or, or, or may look. I, I, I don't even have to come up with all the uh, the alternatives and the options and the possibilities. I'm sure you have no trouble coming up with something every day, and you cannot imagine how wonderful it is for your wife to hear your expression of appreciation, and uh, and men uh, for. Uh, uh, what what your wife should uh, yeah she can tell you also that she appreciates you and that's good and she can tell you how much she admires you because we men really need our wives admiration and their respect that's what we really really need and uh, we need their affection as well we need we need their themselves their, the, we need our wives giving themselves to us we need all of that it's true and that's so much for us to appreciate when we get those things. But expressing those things is really, in other words, just reset your marriage on the 15th of February. That's, that's really what I'm saying. That is the point. And, uh, and that is perhaps the best way to observe Valentine's Day. Ignore it and relaunch your marriage the day after. And the day after that and the day after the day after that also. In other words... Find something to do. And you, you can tell your spouse, hey, I've decided that from today I'm going to find something that I appreciate about you every day. And you know what? It's really easy. There's so much about you I appreciate. 
So just know I'm going to be telling you about that. Nothing wrong with that. And uh, a far, far better thing to do than some silly temporary observance of a silly holiday that the namesake himself, St. Valentine, would look at with complete disdain and perhaps utter contempt. <laughs> All righty. Well, uh, I've enjoyed the time together with you again, and uh, I sure hope you have with me. Don't forget to write to me. Please go to the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, and the Contact Us tab is, is where you can uh, uh, shoot a message to me. I love receiving them. Um, the Thought Tools, you can subscribe to Thought Tools, which is a free weekly email. And uh, you can also purchase the resources that I've created for your benefit. These are ancient Jewish wisdom messages that have been condensed to practical essentials that are truly life-transforming. And uh, some of them are focused on family and friendships. Some are focused on faith. Some are focused on finance. And uh, particularly, the income abundance set is focused on finance, and uh, that really has changed the financial reality for tens, no, hundreds of thousands of people, really. So how do I know that? I do, partially from mail, partially from how many have sold, partially from the number of times I have been brought back again and again to... Uh, to various churches that wanted to expose more people to what the first group got the first time around. So I know it's helping. I know it's changing people's lives. That brings us to the end of this, the 32nd show in the series of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And so all that remains for me is to wish you a week of prosperity and good health. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.